Section 33 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prince and Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. News from the Netherlands. The news of the dear bought victory of Heiliger Lee was late in coming to Dillenburg. It was soon followed by the tale of the complete rout and loss of the third party of invaders, who had invaded Artois under the Seigneur de Coqueville. He and his entire force had been cut down at St. Valery, and the survivors of the defeat had been instantly hanged. From Brussels, too, came other news, as disastrous as sad. All this wrath had found a swift vent, the impudence of the master beggars, as Megum had called them, who had dared to defeat Alva's veteran troops and slay his general, was cruelly revenged on those in Alva's power who were suspected of sympathy with the rebels. The members of the House of Nassa and their adherents were banished on pain of death and their property confiscated. On the ruins of the Cullenberg Palace, which he had burnt to the ground, was erected a pillar commemorating the hatching and overthrow of the beggar conspiracy, which had begun at the famous banquet held between their walls, and before this desolated spot, eighteen nobles and gentlemen were publicly executed, their heads and bodies afterward being fastened to stakes and left to moulder on the horse market. And a few days later, Egmont and Horn were brought to Brussels, and Alva filled in the blank death warrants signed by Philip and brought from Spain, with the names of two of the most illustrious men in the Netherlands, and the most obstinately loyal to Spain of all those Netherland nobles who hated Granville and served Philip. And on the sixth day of June, the most awful blow yet struck at the Netherlands fell, and Lamoral Egmont, Prince of Gravern, Stadtholder of Flanders, Victor of St. Quentin and Gravelines, and Philip Montmorency, Count Horn and High Admiral, both counsellors of the Netherlands and Knights of the Golden Fleece, were publicly executed in the great square at Brussels. The whole country shuddered to the heart, and the hatred of Alva grew to a passion and a fury. There came other news to Dillenburg, to agonize Count John and the waiting women there, news of more obscure victims. A lady and her servant, who two years before had struck an image of the Virgin with a slipper, were drowned by the hangman in a hogshead on the scaffold. A Lutheran who had died in prison was dragged to the place of execution and beheaded with his companions. People were arrested by the tens, the fifties, the hundreds, and put to death without trial. Flight was no longer possible, as the ports were closed against heretics. Trade was at a standstill, commerce at an end. All industries were destroyed, agriculture ruined, the rich properties had been all confiscated or plundered by Norcarms, Megum, and their followers. The great nobles had perished or were in exile, and the nation lay stunned and bleeding before her slaughterers. In every town, in every village, new scaffolds were built, new fires lit. In every field and orchard, the festering bodies hung. On every high road wandered destitute, half-crazed survivors, homeless and bereaved. The death bell was now the only music in a land once given to merriment, and the only dancing that of the dead swinging and shaking in their chains on gibbets, stakes, and trees. The great squares of the great cities, once worn smooth by the passing of thousands of busy feet, were now covered with rank grass and weeds, which were only disturbed by the tramp of the soldiery or the feeble steps of some half-starving wretches creeping into hiding. Only the churches remained wealthy amid the poverty. Only the priests and the Spaniards remained gorged and fat among the miserable and ruined, for while Netherland blood watered Netherland earth, Netherland gold streamed into Spanish pockets. So had the Duke of Alva redeemed his boast that he would tame these men of butter. So with the sword, the fire, the rope, the axe, he strove to uproot and destroy the seed Martin Luther had planted too deep for any man's uprooting and destroying. The messenger who brought the news of the Artois disaster to Count John, and also dispatches from William, who was holding his position as well as was possible, was Francis Junius, the young minister who had preached in the now-destroyed Cullenberg Palace on Parma's wedding day. This man, who was absolutely without fear, on one occasion he had preached in a room lit by the flames of fellow heretics perishing at the stake without, had been in Brussels and had actually mingled with the crowd that had been a horrified witness of the death of Horn and Egmont. Then, after wandering through the desolate country and administering such comfort as he was able to the persecuted people, he had joined William at Cleves and, by him, been sent to Dillenburg. 
When Junius had left Count John, Juliana of Stolberg sent for him. He found her in a quiet room of the castle with her three daughters, Anne of Saxony, the Countess of Hoogstraten, and several of her women. The chamber was hung with worsted tapestry in somber and faded hues. Against this background the group of women, all in the dull black of mourning, with black caps on their fair hair and white ruffs surrounding their fair faces, made a startling picture. She, in the deepest mourning of all, was Hoogstraten's wife. Her dress was dull, without a touch even of white, for the Countess Hoogstraten was the sister of Count Horn. She was seated next to the Countess Vanderberg, and the two were embroidering a child's dress with white and black thread. The Princess of Orange, pale and haggard in the bitter black robes, played with a little white dog that lay on her knee. Renée, also in mourning, sat on a low stool beside her mistress. Francis Junius was also in a plain black gown, a little worn and rusty, and a linen band without lace. He was not discomposed by the presence of all these great ladies, but saluted them with the civil calm that was his habitual manner. The Countess of Nassau rose and received him with a sweet courtesy. "'You come from my son,' she said as she set him a chair with her own hands, "'from the Prince of Orange? If you are not fatigued, I would hear some news of him.' The slim young minister sat gravely facing the semicircle of ladies. His worn and hollow face bore traces of disease and anxiety, but was animated with ardour and enthusiasm. "'The Prince is very well, gracious madame, and bore most valiantly the grievous news. He is engaged in raising fresh levies for another attempt on the Netherlands.' He sends these letters to your princely self and to her highness his wife. With movements as precise as his words, he delivered the letters to the ladies. The countess slipped hers into the bosom of her dress. The princess's letter remained on her lap, on the back of the little dog. Francis Junius kept a reserved silence, as if waiting his dismissal, while the young women whose husbands and brothers were fighting in the cause he preached gazed at him with wide eyes of sympathy and awe. But Juliana of Stolberg wished to hear more of that country where now all her interests were so passionately centred. "'Tell us,' she said, with a sad, gentle earnestness, "'of the Netherlands.' The preacher flushed and started from his abstraction. "'Of the Netherlands?' he repeated. "'Alas, I have seen nothing in the Netherlands you or any lady would care to hear.' "'Do you think we are so weak-hearted?' smiled the countess, pointing to the mourning of all. "'What we have endured and what we must endure, our thoughts and our anxieties, serve to steal us.' Her lips trembled, and she put out her hand to clasp the sympathetic hand of her daughter Catherine, which crept onto her knee." "'Did you see my son Adolphus before he died?' she asked in a firmer voice. "'No, madame, but I have heard of the great honour he had in his death, and I heard that the Count Louis was doing very wonderfully and resolutely with his little means.' "'He had always a high, hopeful heart,' replied the Countess, "'and a very gallant way of cheerfulness. God grant that it be not overthrown nor dimmed.' "'The house of Nassa, said the preacher, "'is greatly blessed by all the poor people of these unhappy provinces. "'In that noble name alone,' he added with reverence, "'they place their hopes.' "'My sons can do much, not everything,' answered Juliana of Stolberg. "'The people, too, are valiant and patient and fearful of God. "'Give credit to the people and to such men as yourself, sir.' "'I,' he exclaimed in genuine astonishment, "'I am as helpless before Alva as a straw before the wind.' Hoog Stratton's wife spoke. Her voice was grave, in tone like that of the admiral, her brother. "'But you have been in great peril. There is a price on your head, and yet you stayed?' "'Ah, uh, that, yes,' he admitted simply, as if these things were a matter of course. "'Why did you stay?' asked Catherine Vanderberg earnestly. It was the land where I was sent to labour, madame, and perhaps I have been some use, the comforts one on his way to martyrdom, to console the bereaved, to utter a prayer over an unconsecrated grave, to encourage the soldiers of Prince William. His expression became sad and thoughtful, and he bent his head as if it was heavy. It is all one can do, he added wistfully. It is enough, said Juliana of Stolberg. God has guided your steps, that you have come safely through such dangers. Junius did not reply. He knew that he was doomed sooner or later to the torture and the stake, for he did not falter from his determination to continue his simple and heroic ministrations in the Netherlands. "'You saw the executions in Brussels?' asked Lenore Hoogstraten in a low tone. "'You saw Count Egmont die, and the Admiral?' 
Yes, replied the minister. He died bravely in his mistaken faith and his mistaken loyalty. Countess Vanderburg had known the brilliant Egmont in the old glorious days, and she asked with a fearful curiosity after the last moments of that unfortunate grandee, looking tearfully the while at Horn's sad sister. Junius answered in a low voice, quietly giving his impressions of that last scene as he had witnessed it from the crowd. He was not greatly moved by what he recited. His fiery, single-minded piety had never had anything but contempt for such as Egmont, and he had seen more horrible things by far than the death of that nobleman. He came walking very composedly. The scaffold was covered with black cloth, with two black velvet cushions. There were Spanish soldiers round, three thousand of them. I think there were great fears of a rescue. It was hot weather, and the Count came about midday, when the sun was strong. He had asked, I heard, that he might die first. I was close enough to see him quite clearly. His hair was almost white, and he looked very tall. He wore a crimson velvet robe with a black velvet cape, and underneath one could see the badge of the golden fleece and his doublet cut away about the neck, by his own hand, I think. He made no speech, but walked up and down, twisting a handkerchief in his hand. He seemed very passionate, and showed rage and despair, asking, I believe, to the very last, if there was not to be a pardon. He disarranged himself, and took off the badge of the fleece, kissed the crucifix the Bishop of Ypres gave him, and knelt. The Spanish captain gave a signal, and I saw the executioner spring out from under the scaffold cloth, and it was over very swiftly. The women remained pale and silent, only Hoogstraten's wife asked, "'And Horn, my brother?' The admiral was more unmoved. He was all in black, and conducted himself without passion, save when he saw his escutcheon hanging reversed on the scaffold when he protested hotly. He looked on the body of Egmont, then wished the crowd happiness, and begged them to pray for his soul, which I, for one, have done, added Junius simply. He was not wept for like Count Egmont, but I think he was the better man. He lived and died gloomily, said the Countess Hoogstraten. He had no joy in wife or child. I wish I had been with him at the end. Even in his coffin he was lonely, answered Junius. He lay in Stigudel, and no one went near him, but when Egmont was in St. Clara, you could not move for the crowd weeping and praying. Yet, madame, he turned to Horn's sister, the admiral will always have the greater honor before God. And the countess, Egmont? asked Juliana of Stolberg. She and her children were in the utmost poverty, for every taller he possessed was confiscate. The day of the execution they were supperless, and fled to a convent. Alva, it was said, smiled the preacher, recommended them to Philip's charity. The Nassau ladies exchanged commiserating glances, but Anne looked coldly. The Countess of Egmont had always been an object of her dislike and envy. "'It is a good lesson to one who is ever overproud,' she remarked. These harsh words, the first that she had uttered since Junius entered her presence, caused the preacher to look at her with a stern surprise. "'You think I am uncharitable?' commented Anne boldly, returning his gaze with all her bitter, rebellious discontent unveiled in her heavy eyes. "'But I am one who has lost as much as Countess Egmont in this miserable beggar war.' The Countess of Nassa gave her a look of austere reproach. "'Are you not ashamed to speak so, you who have a husband, a home, and friends, while she is an outcast exile? Are you not ashamed to speak so before the sister of Horn and Montigny?' "'My husband, my home, my friends,' muttered Anne as she bent over the little dog, clutching it till it yelped and William's letter fell to the ground. Renée picked it up, the blood receding from her face as she touched the inscription he had written, the wax and cord he had sealed, and her mind pictured him in the midst of his pitiful little army, harassed by a thousand cares, penning this letter to an unworthy woman. Juliana of Stolberg turned again to the young preacher. "'You will stay with us a while at Dillenburg,' she said, "'and, after all your labors, rest?' He smiled at the idea that rest was any part of his life. "'Indeed, I must return to the Netherlands,' he answered. "'I shall go back to meet the prince at Strasbourg, and afterwards to the provinces.' "'It is to step into hell's mouth,' said the prince's mother, "'but it is so noble a resolve that I am ashamed to endeavor to dissuade you.' They talked a little longer about his work among the persecuted Netherlanders, and then he left them to prepare himself for the service he was to take that evening in the chapel. 
When he had left, a silence fell over the little group of black-clad women. Only Anne, who was like a firebrand of discord in that peaceful household, was restless. She threw the dog off her knee at last, and limped fretfully about the room. With feverish fingers, she tore open the prince's letter, then cast it down. The countess noticed this and flushed. "'What have you read that displeases you?' she asked. "'What can I read that will please me?' flashed Anne. "'What news can come from a man ruined by his own folly?' "'You speak of my son,' returned the countess, trembling. "'I speak of the man who has reduced me to beggary,' cried the princess passionately. "'And I will use my tongue as I list. "'It is you who do not use the respect you should, all of you, "'little nobles that you are to the elector Maurice's daughter.' "'The countess rose. "'Had you been my daughter, you had been better bred,' she said, "'and learnt many a lesson at the rod's end. "'You may be finely born, but you are foully trained, or else you are mad. "'God pity you. "'If you were not my son's wife, I should have other things to say to you. "'Since you are, I beg you to stay apart from me, "'for my soul is too troubled to support cursed humours.' Anne was silenced. The countess, like William, could overawe her if she chose. The princess shuddered with suppressed passion and, as always when defeated, hurried from the room. The countess seated herself, pale with distaste. Such scenes as these, and worse, were but too common now. Anne had threatened to count John with a dinner-knife, and again and again wounded her attendants with any weapon she could lay her hands on. Renée bore a bruise on her forehead where the princess had struck her with a wine-bottle. "'She is mad,' said Magdalena, with the indignant frankness of youth. "'She should be put away, indeed she should.' "'I think she is mad,' admitted Renée slowly and humbly. She had so completely assumed the burden of Anne's life that she felt as if Anne's faults were her own. She rose now to follow the princess. "'Stay here, you poor child,' said the Countess of Nassau tenderly. Renée thanked her affectionately, but hastened after her mistress. She dared not leave Anne alone. It was always before her, a constant terror, that Anne might escape to Cologne and utterly disgrace the prince, and she felt intensely the responsibility of being the only one who knew how low Anne had descended, even in the days of her prosperity.' End of 33